Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 236. This week, we talk about some of the changes in software development over the last decade, and it's sure to trigger some nostalgia. The year of Linux on the business card. Is Microsoft Edge worth using? And watch out, Quicksort. Crabsort is better for a certain class of aquatic scenarios. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. Hey Carl, how's it going? It's going pretty good. You ready to take a trip down memory lane? Yeah. We've <laughs> so, been, uh... yeah. So we're going to talk about uh, basically the the past decade and uh, and everything that happened in the past decade. So what were you doing in 2010? 2010, believe it or not, uh, professionally, I was going to school. I uh, was working in a factory. Uh, I had uh, three kids at the time and uh, doing probably 60 hour weeks at work and another probably 30 hour for schooling. So that was a crazy time in my life that <laughs> yeah. uh, I actually can't remember because I was kind of sleep deprived. Yeah, that sounds crazy. So yeah, I was uh, I was a, a C sharp developer at the at the peak of my career, and it's all been downhill since then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so later in the show, we're going to be talking about um, a whole bunch of stuff that happened in the decade, and uh, I'm definitely super nostalgic over some of the stuff. But first, let's talk about what's going on right now in the news. So the first one we have here, the first news story is building a self-contained game in C Sharp in under eight kilobytes. This is actually really crazy because you think about what what does that just phrase even mean? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're doing C Sharp and it's self-contained, that means you're, you're bringing along the libraries with you uh, in .NET that it needs to interface with the operating system. Mm-hmm. And... Eight kilobytes is not much space at all. I mean, I easily have text files of just, you know, notes and stuff like that that are way more than eight kilobytes. So if you think about the work that it takes uh, for that to happen, it's quite a bit. Because if you don't really do a lot of optimization, I mean, just bringing the .NET libraries in are multiple megs. And I think in here, when they started, um, they started uh, with a very simple game uh, of Snake, and it was 65 megabytes. Um, and there's a few things that they, they did when they wrote this application that they, they did ahead of time in their code, knowing some of the steps that they would have to take later. And some of these things are not things that I would think about at all. Mm-hmm. So they did zero allocations when they were writing that. Right. And that means I, that was the craziest part to me. You can't use the new keyword. <laughs> you can't use a new keyword. And also you have to think about if, what are the APIs that might be using new behind that? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. And because like, I mean, I could just not write new, but if I have a library where all it's doing is new this and new that, um, that kind of kills that approach. Yeah. And it's but, like this exponential effect, right? Cause you call into one thing and then it knew something up and then that brings in garbage collector. It brings in like all this other stuff and then it could be using other libraries. And I mean, we know how that works with, uh, in the world of packages for sure, but the th- same thing happens just in standard code structures. Yeah. 
So it took nine steps to get all the way down to eight kilobytes. Mm-hmm. And just like you would think, like the first couple of steps were pretty impactful. So they went from like 65 megs down to around 30. Then it was like 28. Then they dropped it around four. And then each one after that was just tiny, tiny increments till they got to the very bottom. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it was kind of interesting. They they also had uh, to use mono as part of this. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, I uh, I forgot. Uh, the, part of it was because of the linker that they use is different. Okay. Oh, and then taking out the some of the runtime stuff. Yeah, this was this was pretty crazy. And I actually charted like you know <laughs> here's each step that we're at and how we removed it. And it's definitely diminishing returns as you mentioned because yeah they cut it in half and then basically in half again and a half again and then it was just like and and there's some stuff like if you don't know some of these things ahead of time like uh, I didn't know you could disable reflection oh, yeah, when you when you build. And that ended up cutting uh, quite a bit down because reflection is pretty heavy, not just, you know, like uh, performance wise, but if it's, you know, expensive performance wise, there's probably a lot of code behind that that's, you know, making that happen. Mm -hmm. I wonder how long this took to figure out. I mean, because like ahead of time, you don't even know if it's possible to get that into. I mean, this is a a pretty lengthy blog post. Right. But I, I read the entire thing. I read every single word it was definitely worth it just to see the journey that it took to go down here. Not that I would necessarily go to this extreme, but if you are a person who does care or have a need for something like this to happen, um, and you still want to be using, um, you know, a language like C, uh, or C sharp, you don't have to, you know, default to like, uh, I guess I need this tiny. I'm going to go to C plus plus or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to, it's possible. Uh, you just have to learn what it takes to make that happen. Yeah. It feels and like the cool everything thing is, is just is, bolted This was up. pretty performant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Everything is just huge these days. Um, it's just like, wh- what is using all of this space? So I, I think it's good to just recognize like what is actually taking up that space. Okay, should we move on here? Um, yep. Cannedemails.com. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, this was because, I mean, you know, knowing you, Jason, you're actually pretty good about phrasing things and, mm-hmm. you know, writing things with, you know, just the right way that somebody reads it there. They feel like this isn't overly terse, even though there's not a lot of words on the screen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I write something like a quick email and I'm like, oh, I just sound cold or impersonal there. <laughs> yeah. And if you go to cannedemails.com, they've got a bunch of like just scenarios where they've just written out some text that is probably just what it needs to be. Uh, they have it in mail to format. So if you click it, it'll actually open up your default editor with some of these pre-populated. And they also have the plain text if you just want to look at it. Oh, the- that's way better. Yeah, I kept I kept opening up my email app and look <laughs> at them. I just I just saw the view plain text section. That's great. Yeah. And and some of these things are like, you might just overshare normally, like, oh, you know, it's just an email saying that you're sick and staying home. Subject at home today. Hey, everyone, due to illness, I'll be, I'm going to be working at home today. I'll be available through all standard channels, email, phone, et cetera. Please keep me in the loop. Thanks. (laughs) That one, I mean, that one, I have a little bit of a problem. Like if you're, if people don't know you're copying and pasting it, it's just like, mm, are you really sick? Like, I know there's different levels of sickness, but like when yeah. I am, when I am sick and can't go into work, I'm usually my, I'll just say like sick, not working. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like I can't waste that mental energy, like recovering on that. Yeah. But I, I think 
it's a little bit different for us since we are remote workers. And for us, like if we are that kind of sick, it doesn't change anything. Yeah. Cause I have exactly, exactly. Like if I'm not working, like I'm probably, there's like a 50, 50 chance I'm about to die. So I, um, whereas I would remember like if, I could be like sick enough that I'm like, I don't want, you know, I'm obviously have like a cold, you know, mm-hmm. I'm blowing my nose. Yeah. You know, I kind of just look like crap. If I go in, people are going to be like, you are a toxic waste dump. You're like, that's yep. kind of stuff that you can still kind of work. Exactly. Through. Exactly. Um, yeah. And this is the kind of email that's great for that. Mm-hmm. So there's, I don't know what, like 20 items on here. Um, also, I, I really like, just like the the topics unsubscribe politely and unsubscribe aggressively. <laughs> and <laughs> I think this would be good too for uh, non-native English speakers, you know, because oh yeah, it, that's just, a really good point. Yeah, it can just help them craft that email a little bit better. Because I always volunteer to people. I'm like, hey, if you if you want something to really pop, like just let me know, and I will I will help you with it. So okay, cool. Uh, next one. My business card runs Linux. This one is truly amazing to me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So, uh, you know, the guy who wrote this blog is an embedded systems engineer. So, uh, like when you take that into consideration, this makes not, not only does it like make sense that he has the capabilities to do this, but it's also like, if like, that's good enough for the interview really in my mind, Mm -hmm. granted, I don't really know what they look for on embedded systems stuff, but this business card, uh, if you look at it, go to the show notes and click on the links. Uh, it has some chips on there and some, you know, resistors and all the normal things. It even has like a little reset button and LEDs on there. Um, his name and all the normal stuff that's on a business card is printed on there nicely. It looks like a business card. Um, you can see a little USB thing coming out. And if you plug it in, it boots up in six seconds into Linux <laughs> and is usable. It has storage on there that you can use just like a, a USB storage device. Um, you can actually uh, access, uh, it has games on there. It has his resume and some pictures he took on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can actually, you know, play the games, save state from your games back to its own flash memory. I mean, this is ridiculously it's cool. A computer, yeah. And the total cost for the card, this is what blows me away. for the hardware. Obviously the time we talked about this before the show, the amount of time to fabricate these is, is quite high. Um, I think it'd be kind of interesting though. If you, if you needed these in bulk, you could probably find a place to make these and, and still keep them, you know, in the five to $10 range. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously the hard part is gaining the decades of experience to pull this off as quickly as he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, all of this is uh, open source. He's got the the source code and the documentation and the schematics all up on GitHub. Yep. So, like, if if you just kind of wanted to take what he did and you know send the the schematics off to a fab, uh, you know they could you know make that PCB for you. You could have somebody you know lay out the electronics. It's going to be a little bit more because you're paying for somebody else's yep. labor. But this is you know. I'd, I'd almost be tempted to do this just because it, it, it's kind of cool. It's like, yeah, it'd be fun uh, to make you know, one. a step up in geek factor from like doing stuff on raspberry Pi. Yep. Yep. So if you're listening Vista print, this should just be an option that you have. <laughs> <laughs> and then, awesome. you know what I would run on mine? I'd run a self-contained game in C sharp and under eight kilobytes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the other thing that was, interesting is they said uh it actually how much memory like the os and stuff took up on here Mm -hmm. um 
Well, it was uh, the bootloader is two fifty six k. The kernel is one point six meg megs, and the whole root file system is two point four megabytes. <laughs> so I I forgot how much the overall storage is, but if he's only taking up two point four megs in the root folder, um, it doesn't even matter how small the rest of the storage is. Most of it's left for you. Yeah. This thing is, cr- this processor is just amazing. I'm looking at Alibaba and the price per unit. Yeah. It's 10 cents to a dollar for the processor, <laughs> <laughs> little 10 cent processor. And we've talked about that before, how they're like Apple makes a cable with like an iPhone four processor in it. It's just uh, it, technology is amazing. Um, and then the next story here, Ford and Microsoft try to tackle traffic jams with quantum research. And what's, what's actually interesting about this is we've had, I believe two quantum episodes in the past. And I know on at least one of those, I had referenced, um, some quantum problems that were, that were, um, basically if you, even if you just emulate quantum computing, you can actually tackle a whole different set of problems. This was actually, I was aware of this internal research project and that was the, basically the scenario that I had in mind. Yeah. So what this particular one is, is like, if, if you have standard GPS, Mm -hmm. uh, routing today if you're kind of you know with five thousand other people's in a metropolitan area and you're kind of in the same similar starting and ending scenarios it's going to route you probably along the same path and the problem is is that's going to increase congestion along that path and because uh quantum algorithms operate differently it can also take in the context of all of the other requests that are happening and understand that because all of these requests would maybe normally take you through a similar route, it can spread out the routes to alleviate congestion. So everybody gets to their places more quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's just like game changing and, and a different way to think about the problem. Yeah. Super, super cool. So yeah, just, it, it shows too, just how, when you frame problems differently and, and that's kind of like why I'm learning another language as well. You know, when you start to think about things like using almost like a different language or a, just a totally different approach, um, you can find innovative solutions. So it's very cool. Um, okay. So let's talk about crab bubble sort. <laughs> yeah. So I thought this was really cool because, you know, we all, those of us who do go to college, uh, you know, learn about the various kind of sorting techniques and it seems that some of these are implemented in nature as well. So when a crab finds an empty new shell, it will actually leave its shell and inspect that shell for the size. If it's too big, it'll actually sit around in that area and wait for other crabs to come, come along. And if that new shell doesn't fit for the other one too, they actually line up in order. And as new crabs come along, they actually insert themselves in size in the right order. So at the end, they can all be in the best fitting shell for them. Mm-hmm. And then they leave, you know, between eight and, uh, you know, it says around eight hours later, yeah. they'll wait. So I thought that was just really interesting to see that, you know, things that we take the time to uh, study that we think that sometimes, oh, this mathematician, you know, came up with it, you know, hey, maybe we could just be more observant of nature around us. Yeah, that that one's sort of natural, right? It it has yeah, it, it's just it has a natural tendency to happen. Um and I think it's kind of interesting thinking about it from the point of the 
um, each crab observing that. Um, and it just works out so that they're all sorted order and then boom, they all move. And it's really amazing. It's really amazing. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And then, uh, Microsoft's quest to go carbon negative inspires $1 billion fund. Yeah. Microsoft has always been very environmentally conscious mm-hmm. and there's certain areas of the business that have been, you know, carbon neutral. I think Azure has been since the beginning. Um, but one of the things that Microsoft recently announced is not only will it get to a spot where it's carbon negative. So mm-hmm. uh, I think by 2030, it says that we will be making the environment better every year compared to what we're you know, polluting through various uh, corporate activities. Mm-hmm. But by 2050, we'll have completely erased all of the historical carbon expenditures since the company's founding, which <laughs> I think is crazy. crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. And we, we actually had a, a live broadcast as Microsoft employees to explain this. And they went really in depth going saying, Hey, this isn't just like buying energy offsets. You know, we're looking to, you know, actually, uh, utilize ways to either plant trees that have, were never going to be planted. We're going to actually scrub the air. There's a lot of different ways, but we're going to demand that all of these things happen, uh, with all of everything in the, in our chain. So when we have suppliers that are providing us with what we need, those suppliers will fit those goals as well to ensure that us as a corporate aren't just polluting elsewhere. Right. So this is actually, you know, one of those things that we've put a quite a bit of thought to make sure this is going to have an appropriate effect. And it's not just some marketing thing. Right. I I think this is great. I mean, because no matter what, I mean, it's trying to improve the environment and just not like crap on the environment. Right. I mean, that's a lot of companies do that. A lot of companies get away with that, um, you know, historically and, and that stuff adds up, you know, plastic in the oceans and, you know, oil spills and things like that. So it's great to see like that. I hope more and more companies get on board with like, how do we, how do we make it? So we're just not, we're just not making things worse. Mate, we're either yeah. neutral or making things better. And so that's great. Very cool. Okay. Uh, Apple may have to abandon lightning connector cable. Yeah. So I, I remember kind of earlier in the past decade that uh, EU had uh, made a bunch of, you know, I, I don't know if they were laws, but, you know, they basically said, you know, all these different phone companies having unique charger uh, charging cables is not cool. We have to standardize. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when everything went to uh, USB uh, micro, micro and USB C. Yeah, I really so hate it was, micro USB, by the way. Oh, yeah, it, it's horrible. <laughs> and it, it sucks that you I, – I just recently bought a device that had it. And it's like, oh, I wish you would have used something better. Yeah. Um, but now it looks like the EU is getting ready to say that – Apple needs to get on board. Mm-hmm. And considering the fact that uh, one of their recent iPads has USB-C, this probably isn't too far away. Right. And I know this past year when I upgraded my Apple devices, that was one of the things that I made a comment to you. I'm like, I really wish they would have made that switch to USB-C. Yep. Yeah, because so, my laptop charges with USB-C. Um, yeah, I mean, this the the number of devices that that don't work with it are just are dwindling. So yeah, I think Apple is going to do this. I think it's a matter of time or 
The alternative is that they just remove it, which, you know, they're keep there's there's continuing rumors about that, which um, uh, the big concern on my side is is CarPlay because, <laughs> well, you know, CarPlay is primarily wired. Uh, wireless CarPlay yep. is not popular. So, you know, hopefully we don't get back into that world. Yeah. It'll be exciting when I can decrease my amount of cables that I have to have laying around. Yeah, I agree. Um, but you know, Apple does have to certify like all these lightning cables, which, which is funny. I mean, it seems like they, they care about quality cables, but at the same time you get this spark every time you plug in a cable and your port, well, your port gets filled with crap and then it like burns the cable every time. I don't know if you, how much you have this oh, issue, yeah. um, but you, so I really you, notice it for some reason in my cables and my vehicles, they seem yeah, to put that, like yeah, that sparking on there even more. Yeah. So then they stop working and then I have to like rub like the, the burnt stuff off or replace the cable. Um, it's just, it's kind of crazy. Cool. Okay. Uh, next story, Microsoft edge. That is what I'm using right now. Yeah. So the new Chromium based edge is out and available for everybody to download. Yep. Um, the only thing that I had a problem with actually is, uh, something I think different than everybody else did. Uh, so the, the beta versions had been out. I don't know exactly how far, but I know that I was using it pretty much since build of last year. Okay. I don't know if it was out earlier, but that's when I really got on board and I've been using it extensively. In fact, I had to have my laptop replaced in the August, September timeframe, and I never installed Chrome or Firefox. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recently, you know, it came out the other day, I installed it and uh, I all of a sudden like none, none of my history or bookmarks or anything showing up. Um, I was using the previous one on my work corporate account when I generally try to keep that all on my oh, personal so you were using account. So stuff like that flows account. through. Yeah. So now I'm in that situation where like, I kind of almost have two, to- even though they're, they're, they're the same code right now, the beta and the release. Yeah. Like they're like two different browsers. Cause one has my full history. Like I can just type a letter and it pretty much knows the sites that are going to pop up. Yeah. Whereas my other that. one, it's like, ugh, it, it doesn't have any of that. It's frustrating. Yeah. So let me explain how I do this. So a couple <laughs> things. <laughs> so first of all, I started using the beta. I switched over a couple of months ago, which was significant because I have tried to switch out of Chrome and my old record was like three hours. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it just, it's just tough. Like it's just, it's just like moving. Like it's just really difficult. Um, this something wasn't right or, or whatever. And then the new edge is just really good. Like they ripped out a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, all the, a lot of the Google spy stuff, you know, maybe some of the Microsoft spy stuff is in there. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm going to be unbiased here, but I know there was tons of stuff that was, that was removed out of Chrome. My memory usage has been good. Like uh, the, I've been right at home. I have had zero regrets about this. And when you were talking about a new machine, it made me realize that how cool this is that I will, the next time I set up a new machine, it will have edge on it. I, that, that'll be like the first time in forever that I will, you know, set up that computer and already have the browser I want installed on there. And, um, and then getting in the, on the topic of profiles. So I think this is great. This is the, the integration is so much better than Chrome because Chrome, whenever you install it is like, Hey, who are you? You know, like you need to log in with Google, which to me is always a little bit of a pain because I just don't use Google for like hardly anything. I know I'm a little bit uh, rare on that, but I, I just don't like their their policies and like, you know, how much information that they have on people, sort of like Facebook, you know, similar situation. So I just, I'm just not a big Google user. I will use 
products here and there, but I like to use a variety of services to sort of spread my identity out everywhere. So um, what's nice about this, like you mentioned, is that you install the browser and the it, it just knows who you are. Um, and you can just say, yeah, I just log in with the profile that I'm logged in with in Windows and it just magically works. Now, the issue you had was the work versus personal profile. To me, that is this is the greatest thing ever. And this is how I, it's exactly how I use Chrome. So here's what I do. So um, in Chrome, I actually had two different Google accounts. I had a personal and a work and I would set up two, pro, two different profiles and I would use two different themes and then I would pin two different icons. So um, even, so and I'm doing the same thing in edge right now. So on my taskbar, if you picture this, I have two different edge icons um, and they both have my face, but they have like a different background in them. And one is like my personal and then one is for work. And then I'm literally authenticated to different sites in each of those. So 90% of the time I'm using my personal one. So I'm authenticated to like Twitter and like outlook.com and things like that. And then in the other one, I'm logged in with my work profile and that has me logged into my, uh, my corporate account. So if I go to mail.office365.com, like it just magically works. Any other internal stuff that I want to access it, it just works. And edge has made this easier than I've ever seen before because on my computers, I do a, basically a dual authentication. I'm logged in with my personal account, but I've done a workplace join. So windows is aware of my work account. Um, and Subsequently, Edge is aware of both of those identities. So when I click my little profile icon within the browser, you can hit, uh, let me see exactly what it says here. So whenever I click on it, it shows like, um, at first it showed one profile. It was just like my personal profile. But if you click add profile, then it it actually popped up and said like, hey, we know who you are with your work identity and your personal identity. And I clicked on my work identity and then it goes, okay, cool. Like we got that second profile set up. And then it was just a matter of pinning it to the, to the taskbar. So the way that they've done this, where it, I don't have to sit here and type in authentication codes and log in is just amazing and makes it even, even easier to, to share two different identities. Make sense. Yeah. That's something that I had done in Chrome, but I never actually transferred that habit over. Yeah. So that's where I got into that issue. Yep. It's better. So, it's better in yeah. the new edge. So, so if you yeah, have, I wish there yeah. was a way that you could just say, Hey, the things that are synced, like on this other account, can you just do like a one time, you know, like, just like when you start up like yeah. Firefox, it says, Hey, do you want to import from IE and Chrome and all these other ones. Yeah, I will say, so now here comes the negative. I did have like, I don't know what's with this sync engine. Like it is, that's something that Google's really good at and, and edge is catching up. Um, I did have, it just kept, I had a couple times where I was like at, trying to edit all my stuff. And I think there was just like, there was like a race condition and what got would sync and it's all working perfect now. Um, but I did end up with like not duplicates, but like I ended up with a whole bunch of extra or old bookmarks that I had in there. Everything's good. Now, the other issue I had was when I installed it on my desktop and I logged in with both profiles, the synchronization was turned off. So I'm just, it's just like, Hey, we know who you are, but we're not going to bring any of your stuff in. And it was just a matter. <laughs> I just had to push a button and said, turn synchronization on so that, you know, make sure you look for that as well. If you set up on a new machine, I don't know what happened there. That was really bizarre. But, um, now that it's all set up, I am hundred percent at home. And, um, there's actually one site that I have to try. Um, th there was only one site that I kept Chrome around for, but I, I actually uninstalled Chrome off my laptop as I don't go to that site on my laptop. And, um, 
um, it was interesting because yeah, Visual Studio was like defaulting to Chrome over Edge for some reason, even though Edge was my default browser. So that's why I uninstalled it off of that machine. But it's it's all good now. Everything works perfect. Um, I can't recommend this browser enough. It does not sync extensions yet, which is a little frustrating. Um, but and then the other thing th- that people need to be aware of that I, I guess people just aren't listening because um, <laughs> we literally a friend of ours he goes. He goes, yeah, I wish you could install Chrome extensions. <laughs> it's like, well, actually you can. And there's just one little uh, switch that you flip and you can use any Chrome extension. So, well, I don't know. The cool thing is you don't even have to flip the switch. If you go to the Chrome extension store oh, yeah. it gives you, and like, the go button. to an extension yeah, and it says, hey, do you just want to enable this? It and like it just puts that UI right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. So it's really good. It's really good. So I like it. Um, my only remaining issue is for some reason when I go to outlook.com it it shows like the splash screen and then I have to click log in but I'm already logged in I don't know what the deal is there I think I'm gonna have to report that one because it did make it to production but um, other than that like why not why not do it I like it any other edge comments oh and it is and it is available on uh, what Mac and Linux I think right so which is which is pretty cool if i was still doing mac stuff i would uh i would definitely install it there and i did run it i did try it on there and work pretty good so cool okay uh let's move on to nerd fonts nerd fonts i know everybody or actually every developer i know is usually pretty picky about their font for development work what do they like to see their code in um and you know that can vary between like fira code source code pro like there's just dozens of them out there that they're monospaced. They have like the extra glyphs. So if you do like a triple equals, it'll like stitch them together or greater than an equal. It'll make them sit and look like how you would actually write that. That's all really cool. However, you know, one of the things that all of those fonts don't have is glyphs in there that you would need something like font awesome or uh, material design icons or stuff like that. Those are missing from there. So nerd fonts has kind of taken all of the most popular developer fonts and taken all of the most popular glyphs from those various packages and merged them together and made those available for you to install and replace your other ones. So you get extra fe- features out of it, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I, I, <laughs> I do often install like a different font, but I honestly like, I'm, I'm not a font snob. Like probably the only reason I do it is so that somebody wasn't like, Oh, you use the default. <laughs> no, um, I, I, I have gotten hooked on ligatures. Yeah. So, okay. It has to have that. I was just looking cause I didn't even realize like I didn't, um, what is the default now in big visual studio? Yeah. Is it uh, something? Oh, it's like- Cascadia. Okay. So it's Cascadia code. So I am using, um, you know, basically a, a, a code font. So I was just looking cause I have been doing a little bit of, uh, I've been getting back into .NET. Um, there's so much cool stuff happening in .NET that I'm just like, okay, I'm going to write something in here. So I'm, and I'm back in visual studio. So I still love code, but I'm just in there for the, for this thing that I'm working on. Raygun crash reporting provides automated monitoring software for your entire tech stack giving you better visibility and code-level diagnostics into the errors and crashes that affect your end users. Raygun is a more sophisticated alternative to logging errors. While logs provide you with an overwhelming stream of information, Raygun finds then groups errors based on root cause. 
The easy-to-use dashboard gives your team members a manageable list of bugs to fix in real time, ranked on frequency, or by the number of users affected. Getting started takes minutes. Simply select the language and framework you wish to monitor and add Raygun into your code using one of their lightweight SDKs. So what are you waiting for? It's time to control the chaos around solving software bugs in your own application. Deliver better software experiences for your customers with Raygun. Visit raygun.com to find out more. Okay, State of Remote Work 2020. Yeah, I thought this was kind of interesting. They had done like a, a Twitter poll of like 330 remote workers, just kind of like, hey, what is going on, you know, where we're at now? Uh, remote work at the beginning of the decade was kind of a new thing. And at least in our field, it's something that became pretty acceptable by, you know, 2015-ish time frame. Yeah, I definitely see and, more of it for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I will admit, you know, I still am kind of upset at how poorly some companies are with remote workers, mm -hmm. um, especially some of the bigger ones. Um, uh, they, they really don't seem to be grasping onto it as much as like the small to medium sized companies are, which at the same time, I, I put a lot of, you know, credit to small and medium companies, uh, embracing that. Cause a lot of times, you know, they do look to what are the big companies doing? Mm -hmm. And, and I keep saying like, you know, Microsoft is spending, what is it like $3 billion on this new campus? Like imagine, I still just think if you would take like the teams team, for example, just send them all home and, <laughs> you know, give, give them a monthly stipend or whatever they need, you know, to, to make that work. Um, but it's a lot cheaper and then the products are just going to improve. Now that's, that is one where they, I'm sure they get a ton of feedback, but I would just like to see that across the board. And, and I have a lot of people say, oh, that doesn't work because of X, Y, and Z. I'm like, then fix X, Y, and Z. Like somebody is going to write a software solution. Like Slack exists, you know, and it, and it helps facilitate a certain class of problem. And if there, if there is still a gap in, in, you know, remote work and how to bring people close together, then like solve that problem. Mm -hmm. So that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. There are some really interesting questions though. Um, you know, one of the first ones here is, do you ever plan to return to an in-office setting? Mm -hmm. Yes or no? I mean, 82% said no. They yeah. don't plan on returning. It sounds, honestly, it sounds repulsive to me. <laughs> Although at the same time, uh, you know, I don't know how many other people, you know, run into this problem, but I know that recruiters get a pretty negative, um, you know, reputation. And a lot of the times, you know, instead of being, you know, you know, dismissive when they reach out, like if they're being pretty persistent, I just respond, Hey, you know, I would be interested, but. I require, you know, to, you know, I work remotely and I need to maintain that. Yeah. I really like and, that too, because that, that might help, you know, at least in a small way, start to change the industry. Because if recruiters start hearing that from everybody, then they're going to start talking. They the want to recruit yeah. people. And if this is the thing that's holding them back. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, like, you know, I actually might be kind of interested in some of the opportunities that have been before me, mm -hmm. but you know, once again, I am not going to give up my remote status. Yep. Exactly. Um, the, another question I thought was interesting. Would you recommend remote work to others? And the potential answers were yes, no, and it depends. Nobody said no. Oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah. So two thirds of people said I would recommend it to others. And the other ones were depends because, you know, like, hey, I would recommend it to some people, but I know that like, hey, my buddy Josh or whatever, um, they're just not a fit for this. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, you know, it's recognizing that remote work is awesome, but it isn't for everybody. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that one's really, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's really amazing to, to be that, uh, that black and white. So cool. Okay. Should we move on? Yeah. Um, and if you would just, if you want to see the rest of these, there's, you know, this is a pretty, uh, detailed one, uh, or questions and an article, uh, that is around this. So go to the show notes and click on state of remote work. Perfect. Okay. And then we were going to take a little, um, stroll down memory lane. So, you know, I was just thinking this morning about, um, kind of what the world looked like in, in 2010, in many ways, it looked really similar to how things look today. I mean, I feel like it was maybe less change in, in things like desktop computing, right. And more change, more changes in like social and, um, um, you know, like the rise of the smartphone and things like that. Um, and actually one of the stats that I saw whenever I was doing the research on this was around less than, uh, one third of adults owned a smartphone in 2010. Yeah. Um, a pretty crazy statistic. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that, you know, kind of inspired in my mind for this discussion is, you know, you always hear that people overestimate what they can do Mm -hmm. in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10. Yeah. And and I I look back at this decade, uh, you know, in reflection and really kind of see that play out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, kind of building on that whole smartphone thing too, like, you know, everything is like optimized for, I shouldn't say everything, but I mean, you, you sort of expect websites, at least common things to be optimized for your phone now, or to have an app, you know, and I, I don't know why, but I just keep thinking of travel in my head, like the way that travel is done now. I mean, every. I shouldn't say everybody, but most people are using some kind of navigation on their phone. And, you know, whenever you're traveling, like you're, you know, you probably have the airline app on there or you're using that to get information about your flight and things like that. So like we really just have a huge dependency on this thing that we put in our pocket. And I would say 10 years ago that that dependency was probably just way weaker. Like even personally, if I had to take a flight 10 years ago, I definitely would be printing a boarding pass, for example, whereas now, like I trust the the digital boarding pass completely. Well, and in, in fact, because everything has become so digital with those passes and stuff, having a paper pass is actually a detriment because now uh, the flights and airports actually change quite a bit. I mean, it's pretty common for the gates to change, you know. Mm-hmm every, you know, 10, 15 minutes, if there's a lot of churn in the system or, uh, there's a lot of like, uh, changing weather patterns or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have an app, you can actually, you know, get to that new place with plenty of time. Whereas, uh, they don't really make those notifications audibly in the airports and you might miss a flight because you're stuck to your paper pass. Yeah. I had a flight that was delayed and then it was undelayed. That was a new one. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I, you know, so everybody left the gate and then here they like undulate it and then it was an issue, yeah. but, um, but also talking like GPS, I yeah. remember, um, you know, about a decade ago, I had an external GPS receiver in my mm-hmm. car hooked up to a laptop running, you know, maps and trips. Wow. Nerd. Yeah, I was. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. That was like a salesman, you know, a lot of sales, salespeople did that. Um, that's pretty wild. 
but yeah, I was just, I just flew Alaska, you know, cause I'm stupid and you know, I'm Delta <laughs> platinum. So I flew Alaska and, uh, it was actually funny because I was in, I was in boarding group D both directions and, and both times, like it didn't matter at all because the first one I was like 20th in line, like waiting to, you know, to get on the plane and they had a separate lane and they're like, Hey, if you have your boarding pass ready on your phone, you can come over to this one. And I just like passed everybody and was able to use that lane. And I, so I got on the, the plane right away. And then the other one, this is totally a little bit of a tangent, but, um, I, I was taught, I know I told you about this, the, uh, the airport, they were, they were doing the whole shuttle thing where they took a bus to the plane and we boarded the bus in order of boarding group. So like, they're like, okay, first class. So they get on the bus and then they, then as groups were getting on the bus, they're like, Hey, everybody, you know, like go to the back. And what ended up happening was like, the the worst boarding group, which was me, got off the bus first because I was closest to the door. So I was in the first 10 people to get on that plane as well. So that was just a, sort of a miracle of modern technology. Um, okay, so we got a lot of stuff to cover here. So things like um, Internet Explorer 8 was the browser of 2010. <laughs> well, not, not just that, but also in 2010, IE6, if you're at work, was probably the corporate standard. Right. Right. It took quite a few years for corporations to jump off of six. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Chrome, I, I almost kept this out of here so that you, I, you could guess what version Chrome was on. It started the year at version four. <laughs> and we're on, I believe it was like 80. I think when I uninstalled <laughs> it, I saw version 80. Um, and then at the end of 2010, it was, uh, it was version eight, I believe. <laughs> so um, those were definitely- yeah, That was kind of right at the beginning of their enhanced- you know, releases and auto updating. Right. So IE, IE eight sucked and Chrome four was getting good. Um, and then that's really like the, that's when the rise of Chrome started, um, as far as Intel processors. So they were, they're, they're, this is a little mushy. Cause like the, there, there was announcements before 2010, but, um, the, um, before 2010, the Intel core processors, that was, that was what, um, was coming. There was like the core two duo and like that whole line of processors. But in 2010 is when they actually released and, and, uh, you know, like from production, the, uh, processors that were after that core series. So the first ones were the Nehalem. And then there was like all the different lakes and stuff like that. Um, and actually the computer I built, I think was in like 2011 or 2012 and had a, had one of those, um, I seven processors that was, that was, um, you know, pretty, pretty close to some of those first ones. I was really trying to f- figure out, it's so hard to compare like speeds of processors, but, um, you know, because like measurements change and then like, really there was like the rise of doing like one or two core to having a whole bunch of cores, but as best as I can figure, processors are about 10 times faster than they were 10 years ago. Um, That's which, pretty significant. Yeah, it is significant. Um, and that also rings true for like mobile processors. Like I was looking, so um, the iPhone 4 was popular at the time. And if you compare like a, a in, in 11 XS Max or whatever, um, the you know, even the processors there, if you count the multiple cores are roughly 10 times faster. And now that's, you know, my math is not perfect here, but I was just kind of looking at different benchmarks and, and it was around a 10 X improvement. And I was like, man, that is 
That is really amazing. I mean, the computer that I built <laughs> around that time and what I have now, and, and that rings true for that. I mean, that one using handbrake could process video at like 40 frames per second. And this new computer I built can do 400 frames per second in handbrake with, uh, with, uh, 12 cores. So, and, and I think you, the other thing that's interesting, cause I had a built a PC in about 2009 and just yeah. did it, um, uh, about a week or two ago with a new one. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say that not only has things gotten a lot faster, but if you're doing custom builds, they're way easier than they were 10 years ago. Yeah. I think the compatibility among pieces and uh, just how simple they are to, you know, assemble and get going are, are much different. Um, yeah. I think the biggest thing issue now noticed- is the physical dimensions, right? Like you got to, you got to figure out like what, what will physically fit into a case. That's that, that's like the biggest issue right now. <laughs> well, well, the other thing I was going to say is cases have gotten so much better. I remember back oh, yeah. then there were cases that had good airflow and cable management, but they were really expensive. Mm-hmm. I got like a $90 case. It has, you know, a clear acrylic side so you could show off all the LEDs, but it also has amazing built-in cable management and there's just um, tons of airflow. Yeah, the cable so, management is just redonkulous because you have modular power supplies and cable management behind those panels, and it's amazing. Yeah, uh, and like you said, with those modular power supplies, I mean, they've figured out exactly where things are going to be in the cable management, and those cables are not a millimeter too long or too short. They're perfect. Yeah, and now the new Mac Pro doesn't have any cables in it. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. Everything's modular and just hooks together. Um, okay. Uh, let's see visual studio. So we were on visual studio 2010 and I, I have a screenshot in here and we'll include that in the, in the show notes. Um, I just grabbed this from like Bing images. Um, honestly, like it's not that much different than what it looks like today. Other than like, there's the, I don't think there was a dark theme at the time. I can't even remember if you could customize the colors, um, but it's funny cause this is like a WinForm thing. Um, you know, WinForms was, was even more popular. I know it still exists out there and WPF is still around and, um, but yeah, I mean, visual studio has always been amazing for, for productivity, but, um, and it's just been refined, uh, more and more over the years. Yeah. One of the things that I, you just dragged my memory on is mm-hmm. there was a transition where visual studio was built in, uh, a, a previous technology and then made the switch to WPF. And obviously 2010 looking at the screenshot is the WPF version of this. So I'm kind of wondering like how long after that change this is. Right. Right. And then I, the other significant change, honestly, in, in visual studio was like how it installs, how it updates. It used to take, it would take four hours oh, to update. I know there was hours. one update that would, that, that would happen in um, it's super fast. Now it's basically an X copy. So it installs quick, uninstalls quickly. And then also oh, the up- they did a good job with the threading where if you have like a giant project or, I mean, it's just so much faster now. Well, not to mention, you know, the difference, like just getting that on a download for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of the, the basic version is amazing. It is. Uh, whereas back then the basic version was pretty neutered, uh, but it also came on the MSDN discs. Right. <laughs> Where yeah. you would get like that huge wallet of disks and you got the monthly physical mailings yeah. to update it. Yep. I remember those. 
And then the screenshot actually has uh, VB.net in it. So I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, hey, like VB.net was a thing. And I actually looked, I was really surprised because VB.net like grew in the past decade, actually grew steadily um, according yep. to this, like, T- is it TOB? TOB index? Yeah, TOB. Okay. So it it actually started like in 2010, it was like in position 49 and went, it peaked at number five in 2019. What the heck? I mean, it's like, I couldn't believe how popular it is. I was well, expecting the opposite. So another VB reference from that era, I don't know if you remember when you first interviewed me uh, at, a, at when we both worked together at Orion, mm-hmm. uh, that interview quickly devolved into me getting my laptop and showing you my visual basic app that I wrote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the first time I actually had to, or I actually defended my code in front of somebody who was more senior to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's just, it's amazing the, the staying power of some of these languages. And it's crazy too. Cause I, I, you know, we work with a lot of people that, um, you know, I, I was doing C sharp since when it was in uh, beta, which would have been 2001. So like I've been doing .NET for, I guess, 18, 19 years now. And, uh, it's actually crazy how old even like .NET and C sharp are. Um, yeah, it's really amazing. But it's also crazy to look at the the changes that have happened over that time. You would not write a C sharp app the same today as you did back then, even if your requirements were identical. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, Windows Seven is uh, the latest operating system in 2010. That's what you would have been using, uh, which was and solid. We just and we just got rid of it in official support right. uh, about a week ago. Yeah, but Windows Seven. I mean, it was good. Oh, I can't, can't complain. It, it was solid. Yeah, you know. I, I, you know, I always had the with Windows Seven. I, I always thought it was amazing. I think people always have a harshly unfair negative feelings towards Vista because mm-hmm. Vista did a lot of foundational things and were pretty drastic changes, um, especially to like the driver model. A lot of the sixty-four yeah. uh, bit code support that in those first like month actually had a lot of problems, but Microsoft was pretty quick to fix that. Windows 7 was, to be honest, a lot of refinement on what uh, Vista had. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, like, if if you install it today, uh, I was watching some videos of people who were kind of just installing Windows 7 um, right before uh, support ended. And, you know, it still looks modern. It still installs a ton of apps with amazing support, um, mm-hmm. you know, other than the support being gone because windows 10 has been around for quite a few years now, you know, it's hard to say much bad about it. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, Microsoft stock was in the $28 range. And now it's what about 165 ish. Yeah, I, I, I would recommend stocking up. Um, if you're, uh, if you're listening from 2010, um, yep. <laughs> buy lots of Microsoft stock. <laughs> That's pretty, uh, that's pretty also good. a lot of Amazon, Apple, uh, of course, uh, Google, of course. Yeah. Actually that was probably not a great time to buy it because like you'd be waiting a long time. <laughs> but if you, if you had have 2010 cash and a lot of time to spend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you just, if you're playing the long game, um, and you know, if you're a time traveler with lots of time in 2010 and don't want money right away, then it would be a really good investment. I think it was, it was, it was around the same price when I started six years ago. And then, uh, 
it's been going up ever since I started. So, uh, yeah, I, I know you like to say that, uh, that's when the stock went up. Yeah. Yeah. I was, <laughs> you know, I, there are no coincidences in this world, Carl. <laughs> um, okay. So I w I was kind of curious on what type of camera was popular. Um, so I, this was just a quick search, but, uh, one article was talking about the Sony alpha DSLR a two thirty, uh, which was available in Sears. <laughs> <laughs> I got such a kick out of that. Um, so yeah, in, in a, a store that, um, uh, does not exist. Um, a camera that I would think, you know, if you're doing like portraits would probably hold its own pretty well, but for every practical application, um, you're probably better off with the, uh, the camera in your, in your modern day smartphone. It's, it's, it's really amazing to, to see that. Oh, and, and, and on camera news, I've, I figured out how to uh, offend some photographers. <laughs> um, and I knew they were going to misunderstand me, but I had asked them, I said, Hey, you know, like what's the state of, um, and I said, the iPhone does a lot, a ton of computation. What's the state of that in like, you know, regular cameras. And I think, I think that they thought I was comparing cameras, you know, like sensors. Um, and they were, they were just like, Whoa, but then I explained what I was asking and I got them calm back down. Um, do you know what camera you were rocking back in 2010, Carl? Oh, it was a, like a Canon point and shoot. It was, it was probably like $200 at Best Buy. Yeah. I might've had the, I don't even remember what it was. There was like a, it was like the S one, the Canon S one. Is that what it was? S one twenty five. I had like a big camera that was like, yeah, it's not this one because there was the power shot. Yeah, see, this was back in the power shot days. That was classic power. Yeah, shot. I would have had some kind of power shot. Yeah, see, I had like the, I had like a big one, like something that was like sort of pretending to be DSLR. Oh yeah, power shot S one. Um, oh, so that was pr that was before that. So I might have been, I was probably onto the Nikon series at that point. So Nikon DSLRs at that point. Um, which like I said, would still hold their own. Definitely. If you have some good glass, um, even in today's era, if you're doing like portraits or something like that. So, um, okay. CES 2010, I was just kind of curious what was all the rage at CES 2010, um, 3d TVs were being pushed pretty hard <laughs> and we see how that worked out. Um, not at all. And then this one was kind of cool. Sony showed off a whopping 24 inch OLED TV. That had to be mind blowing at the time. And actually I am kind of impressed though, that even a decade ago, like OLED, you know, they were talking about that being the future. I mean, it does show you how we, we sort of always know in the world of TVs, like what is the next display technology? We just don't know like what the timelines are, you know, micro LED is, is like, you know, every, what everybody's talking about is the next big thing. But um, so just yeah. for comparison, yeah, the Samsung had a TV called the wall, which was a micro led TV at 292 inches at CES this year. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. I'm excited for that, but I do love my OLED. Um, I love that technology. Um, yeah. So this was the decade of the rise of OLED. Um, iPhone four, I mentioned earlier was the iPhone at the time, the latest and greatest. And honestly, like that was a huge, that was a huge jump in, uh, in technology from the, from the three GS. Like it really was like defining even the design that they use today. Well, that was going to be my other point is not only was it a technological jump, but it was kind of, you know, I th to me, that's the iconic iPhone. Yeah. When I think to like the first, like really good looking designed one, um, 
I think was that the one that was also an antenna gate, or was that the four S? Uh, I think it, you know it was the four. It was the four. I had it. An antenna oh, gate was a real thing. Yeah, because they, they yeah because the metal around the there was part of that design. Yeah, I remember uh, at work. You know, we all had issued iPhone fours and us all getting like bumpers for you know because that's what the solution was is you got like those bumpers mm-hmm. yeah exactly you could get the free bumpers <laughs> um and then this one i'm not bitter about this but facetime announced or facetime was announced at that time which which has been super useful and uh that's the year that steve jobs promised it would uh, make it an open standard so um yeah so w- today obviously we have facetime on windows and everywhere else. Right. <laughs> so that, that never happened. And I thought the same, the same promise was made around iMessage, by the way. Um, but then I think they realized like, uh, yeah, this is why people are sticking with our platform. Um, it's certainly like one of the largest reasons why I couldn't, uh, switch away from iPhone. Uh, people in my family, um, you know, have iPhones and I can, I can use, I, I can use, um, FaceTime and it works like a phone call that integration makes it pretty much impossible to leave. Yep. And speaking of iPhone, since we are Microsoft focused in mm-hmm. October 21st of 2010, uh, Steve Ballmer announced the windows phone seven. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That would have been, and, uh, yeah, cause I went to PDC the year after that and I got an iPhone seven, like that weird German thing. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and I remember, uh, shortly after, I started working for you, you know, we all had iPhones and I remember very nervously asking you if I could get a windows phone instead of an iPhone. And you all thought I was crazy. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And, uh, I I mean, if you remember most of the people that I worked with, uh, probably because I annoyed them so much eventually did have one in one way, way, shape or form. Yep. Uh, Yep. obviously none of us have that now anymore. Yeah, there was like a there was a time when when they obviously peaked and and things like um what was it deep linking was just yep. was just amazing and and we just we still don't have that good of a technology even on the iPhone yet which is disappointing. Yeah. But it's amazing how much of an influence that that phone had on the rest of the industry not just in in phone capabilities because a lot of those capabilities did get replicated mm-hmm. but uh the design language for it we see that still with you know the the flatter uis mm-hmm. uh the the iphone going away from skeuomorphism was probably directly related to the windows phone design work um in the web all over the place you can see a lot of you know the influences that the design of windows phone had everywhere else yeah yeah um, let's see here. YouTube videos were, were short. <laughs> um, even let's see here. I was trying to figure this out, but even, so it looks like even in 2014, there was a 15 minute max video length. Um, and then I don't know, I don't know. I, it's really hard to find like the history of the limits on, on YouTube, but basically like, you know, now you can upload like an hour long vlog or whatever, and it's not a big deal. But back then they were, they were much shorter. And you even do. 24 hours of video you can have. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of those. <laughs> um, and then this one, I, I just bumped, I just found it randomly, but Farmville was all the rage. <laughs> oh, I remember playing a lot of Farmville. Yeah. I never played it ever. So no, I mean, I remember a lot of Facebook games. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know of any Facebook game. I mean, I'm, they may still exist, but yeah. Yep. Okay. Any other news you wanted to make sure you recovered? No, I mean, you know, I kind of interspersed all, you know, a lot of 
you know, what we had, yep. you know, I, I think looking, you know, the one thing looking back is initially in that 2010 ish era, you know, doing web development with just like ASP.NET MVC was still new. <laughs> uh, Stack Overflow famously was kind of like the first big site yeah. on there. And uh, a lot of what we did back then was still kind of, you know, vanilla technology. You didn't mix and match a lot. Whereas now, if you look at the state of web development, it's it's a pretty complex beast to get a, you know, production website, you know, out there. Yeah. It seems like, it feels like the, the number of things you have to know is so high. It used to be like, I'm going to be an ASP.NET MVC developer and that's what you do. And you well, can and do back then complexity was like, I'm adding jQuery. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I use jQuery on the front end. Cause I got to deal with that front end stuff. And now I don't know, like I'm even just getting back into ASP.NET core using, um, uh, basically the API functionality. And there's a whole bunch of like, you know, convention in there, a lot of convention. And I have to read the documents and just figure out like that one little thing. And then I have to figure out what technology is on the front end and, um, yeah, what do you use for communications and then how do I package it up? You know, there was obviously in the past decade, like thing, like the rise of Docker, um, and microservices architecture and, and all of these other things, you know, have happened in the past few years. So yeah, there's just a, there's the, the landscape of possibilities out there is just, is huge. Well, especially when you mentioned, you know, Docker that, you know, really kind of makes me wonder where we'll be going with that because in 2010 we were you know still kind of on that vms are are the transitional right thing and like we're going to put <laughs> things point. on vms and then containers came out because we you know had to use vms more efficiently and now we're using orchestrators because containers are too hard like yeah. you know what's going to you know what's going to manage the orchestrators next yeah now it'll be like you know a container per line of code <laughs> following the trend. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, so we covered the decade. Um, what is your dev tip of the week? Dev tip of the week is kind of cool. Um, you ever go to a site that has a video and you're, you're definitely interested in the video, but it doesn't have like a lot of the controls on there to like adjust the playback speed or, you know, your browser does picture in picture, but, you don't want to sit there on that website. Um, you can actually use uh, the inspection tools in uh, your browser to, you know, get around that. So if you right click inspect on a video that has a video tag, you can then uh, open the console and a dollar sign zero will get you the last thing that you inspected. So then you can access properties on there. So if you do dollar sign zero dot playback rate equals two, you can actually double the playback speed. <laughs> That's super or cool. If, yeah. Or if you do dollar sign zero dot request picture in picture, that's a function. So put the quotes or the parentheses on there. It'll actually pop it out into a picture in picture mode. So then you can browse other sites. Yeah. I, I actually don't find the video stuff that interesting. I think I, some people will, but the dollar sign zero, that's, that's mind blowing to me. I didn't realize you could get the last. Well, and that, that was the other part of this. And like, yeah. not only is this kind of interesting for that, but now you have another tool. Like if you want to go play around with a website, yep. that makes it a lot easier. Right. And I do that all the time. I'm always, you know, fixing stuff for, <laughs> so yeah, definitely like that one. Very cool. Any final comments? No. Okay. I think this was a, 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 you know, I definitely enjoyed my last decade. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of, 
had my entire career in that decade and definitely was a fun ride. It'll be just interesting to see where, you know, that experience is going to take me going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it was great talking to you, Carl. I uh, see you in the next episode. Excellent.